You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. We're here today to do a deeper dive into the potential effects of the coronavirus on the property market. To do that effectively, we need to consider the fundamentals of housing in this country and who better to help us navigate these uncharted waters than the smart as a whip, Eliza Rowan. You may recall our last interview with Eliza back in episode 81. If you haven't listened to it, please go back and do so. She deconstructed the previous boom and downturn for us And it is really essential for property investors and owners of owner-occupied properties to understand these drivers. Now, Eliza has had a job change since then and is now the head of residential research for CoreLogic in Australia. Now, she has a wealth of experience in property data analysis and reporting through working as an economist at Residex, a research analyst at Domain Group, and previously as the commercial real estate and construction analyst at CoreLogic. So alongside her career in property data and research, Eliza is passionate about explaining economic concepts to broader audiences. She unpacked housing affordability on the TEDx stage and has been a regular commentator for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, the ABC and commercial radio and television. So thank you so much for joining us today, Eliza. We're really looking forward to understanding from your perspective what might be going on in the property market in this very tangible time. Thanks for having me. Hi, Eliza. Um, apologies to our listeners about the audio. We've had a few uh, teething issues, so it won't be our best quality this one, but the content will be amazing. So, Eliza, um, lots is happening. You wrote an amazing article and probably one of the most comprehensive articles I'd seen on Corona um, on the 23rd or 25th, I think it was. Um, 23rd of March, and we're now recording this on the 26th. I think it's important for us to timestamp it because things are moving so fast. So what have you really seen in just the last week and how big have some of the changes been on the property market per se? Yeah, thanks, Chris. We've seen just daily incredible changes that are completely altering the nature of the economy, of business activity, and of course, real estate um, with open auctions and open inspections now being banned. Um, So what we're trying to do is look to some high frequency data. Um, Last weekend, so between the 20th and the 22nd of March, uh, CoreLogic actually surveyed Uh, about 400 real estate professionals nationwide uh, through its RP professional platform. Uh, And we asked real estate agents, uh, you know, what's happening in your buyer inquiries over um, your your seller inquiries? Has there been a change in the past week? Um, And the most immediate uh, standout response is that buyer activity has really fallen sharply. Um, So, about a third of respondents had seen a decline in buyer inquiry of more than 50% in the past week. Mm. And that result is really in line with what we've seen in consumer confidence, uh, rising unemployment, which is going to see less people confident and able to buy property. Um, Seller inquiry didn't have quite the same sharp uh, decline. Um, Overall, about half had seen some rate of decline, but not as strong. Uh, as we keep getting those survey responses in, we find that the number of um, agents who are seeing buyer and seller inquiries drop off by at least 25% is is rising to about two thirds. Yeah. Um, 
uh, and we're also tracking the um, generation of CMA reports, which are the comparative market analysis reports. So they're used to help real estate agents with uh, listing campaigns because they've got information about a property, comparable sales. That's dropped off really dramatically um, in the past week. Um, it looks like CMA generations have fallen off about 37%. And that's a um, leading indicator of listings. So it looks like uh, sellers are going to be quite deterred given what's happening in the current environment. So great. So you've got access to a portal, which is You've gone from probably one of, I think, one of the best portals, uh, data sources like Domain to another amazing data uh, portal, which is obviously Cordologic. Um, And two of the things that you're able to get data on now is inquiry through real estate agents. So just by them giving you actual on the ground data. Um, But also if they're looking at properties to sell, um, one of the things that they do is generally print off CMAs for their uh, potential vendors to give them an idea of what it's worth. Is that the the two things that you're seeing that have already dropped off dramatically? Yeah, those are the more high frequency indicators. There's also the auction activity, which as we know from um, today is uh, open auctions and inspections are banned. Um, this weekend, we were expecting the highest number of scheduled auctions this year across the capital cities at over 3,000. And it'll be a really interesting test this weekend to see how real estate agents kind of manage that, whether they pivot to technological platforms, whether um, most auctions get withdrawn for private treaty. Um, we have also seen the clearance rate over the past week. So weekending 22nd of March uh, was 57% which is the lowest clearance rate result that we've seen since June last year, which was pretty much the uh, market trough. And that was uh, Australia-wide clearance rate? Yeah, sorry, that's across the combined capital cities. So it's interesting because, of course, we won't be able to look at clearance rates anymore because there's just too much change in terms of the fundamental process of it, right? So, but anecdotally, I've been uh, finding with agents telling me, well, some some are just saying, no, I don't trust online and so therefore I'm I'm just going to go to private treaty, we'll go for offers. Um, And the other side of the fence is, no, we're, we're quite fine with, with auction online platforms and, and a lot of that depends on, I guess, the auction the auctioneers that they've been working with. But um, so it's sort of a bit split and so therefore that would change the, the makeup or the, compa- the, com- the composition of those results, right? Um, but are you, is there any other data that you guys have got in terms of how that will change or how that is changing, I should say? In terms of how auctions will change? Well, no, just in terms of how agents will respond, is there any sort of any data you've got for that or is it really just anecdotal at this stage? At this stage, uh, it is anecdotal. Even through our recent sales team, you know, just uh, um, so our recent sales collection teams are, are the ones that kind of start collecting the data on auction day. Uh, we're going to have them sort of just talking to the agents and saying, you know, what is your experience right now? What what kind of uh, sales methods are you looking to? Um, I, I, you know, are sales continuing or, or are people withdrawing? So uh, at this stage, anecdotal, but, it, you know, in this environment, you really need to look for any data you can get your hands on that mm. is going to be high frequency. Um, and it's so hard because, you know, most of the major economic indicators that we look to, things like uh, unemployment, uh, th- that's so redundant now and, and that data is only a month old. Yeah. Well, I mean, we did a recording on the corona last week and, you know, no one I had an idea of where unemployment could go to, right? And, um, you know, Veronica asked me, you know, where do you think unemployment will go? And I said, well, you know, someone's saying, you know, Bill Evans I was referring to, he reckons 7%, but I thought, well, 7% would be an amazing outcome. Um, you know, in the US it went to nine, but then there's underemployment and things like that. I mean, interesting, even on Monday, Bill Evans completely flipped. He went from 7% to 11% unemployment in the space of three days. I mean, what, you know, is there any ways that we can have any idea of what unemployment has jumped to? I mean, besides just seeing queues at Centrelink? I was actually going to say, I think that's the most recent data that I've heard with Scott Morrison talking about, about an increase of, I think it was 150,000 inquiries about unemployment benefits um, over over the past week. Which is about 1.5 million 
5% straight away. And that's only, in, so that takes us up to around 7% now, let alone, you know, potentially what's to come. Yeah, potentially. I think that, um, I guess because personally I've just seen it happening as well. I know so many people who work in hospitality, um, but also related sectors like food manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I, I know so many people who have already, um, been, been stood down or, or lost their jobs. So, um, it, it, I think 11% is not, uh, unrealistic, you know? A hundred percent. I mean, I've had clients who have had to sack 20 staff, um, you know, lots of small businesses there. And even if, even if they haven't been made unemployed, their business's revenue has, you know, pretty much gone to zero because, um, you know, it's not an ongoing revenue business. And a lot of people aren't renewing contracts or they're not popping into their stores or buying their services. So, um, you know, businesses are getting hit plus you're getting unemployment, um, which is what we've seen. In terms of your article, you spoke a lot about, um, which was really interesting around how the property market has performed um, after, say, stock market crashes. Um, and you've, can you give us a bit of an insight of, you know, what generally the property market does when we have these sort of catastrophic um, events? Yeah, so I think it's about going back to the fundamentals of property in a way. One of the things that we know about property as an asset is that it's relatively illiquid. Uh, because of long transaction times, because people are using it as a consumption good. It's one of those assets where you don't necessarily get a run on property or a flight to uh, property. Uh, And as a result, we've seen that while there have been large negative economic shocks in places like uh, share markets, we don't see the same kind of dramatic volatility in the property market. And what happens in the property market is also very dependent on how it impacts um, the lending space, uh, how it impacts certain local employment markets. So if you think about events throughout history, uh, the Black Monday stock market crash, for example, uh, in the late 1980s was a period where stock markets saw significant values, uh, you know, wiped off. Uh, But the property market actually experienced double digit growth uh, a year on. Uh, And part of that is because there was so much changing in the residential space. We saw negative gearing as we know it today uh, introduced. Uh, We saw that uh, employment was relatively strong uh, in that period. Uh, You've got Uh, the early 90s recession, which did have an impact on Australian property and saw a peak to trough decline of about 4%. In the GFC, uh, there was a credit crunch and we saw a peak to trough decline in property of 7.5%. But again, it's these, these economic events, they don't tend to impact property values uh, as much as we might see uh, stock values, for example. Um, And I guess the other property market, sorry, cut you off. It's hard with this uh, zoom to be (laughs) a bit easier (laughs) face to face. Um, But, you know, share markets have say fallen 40% in a month, Um, you know, and I know they've come back a little bit in the last couple of days, but you know, this day, this time last week, they were down 40%. Um, you know, so a 7% decline in property markets over a year or something like that is not a, you know, a big difference, right? Is it, and that's what happened in the GSC. Stock markets fell 50, 60% at some points. Um, but, you know, stock property prices only fell 7 That's right. I guess where we do see more volatility in terms of real estate is sales volumes. Um, it's uh, – a quicker decision whether or not to buy a a property than it is to kind of sell off a a property, you know? Um, And so what we see is that there is more uh, volatility in that space. Um, So major economic shocks historically have seen a peak to trough decline in sales volumes of about 20%. Uh, In the downturn we've just been through, the, the period that was from late 2017 to mid 2019, that was a time where it wasn't necessarily a negative economic shock, but you did have a shock that was very targeted to the property investment lending space. And what that created was a peak to trough decline of 40% 
uh, in sales volumes. Uh, and again, only uh, about 8.4% in sales values. So well, we distinguish between sales volumes and, and listings. And I only ask that because, of course, it can still have heaps of listings, which is less of themselves. Absolutely. I think what we'll find is that in, in this upcoming period, we'll probably get a bit of a surge in total listings at first because we'll see the buyers falling away before the sellers fall away. Uh, and again, we're already seeing that in the survey data that we uh, have retrieved through RPP. Um, so yeah, I think you'd get this initial kind of surge of total listings. It's the new listings that will decline. If people yep. expect that the sellers aren't out there right now, mm. then they're probably thinking it's not a good time to sell. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I guess that is... Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, you're right. So, like, and if you can't even do open homes and you can't do auctions, like, it doesn't take common sense to realise that maybe now is not the right time to list your property on the market. <laughs> Um, and it's, it must be a hard sell for an agent to say, yeah, now's a great time to sell, right? Like, um, so it's not like they can even convince people to sell right now because, you know, it's just common sense. Why would you want to sell when people can't really, you know, there's not much buyers out there, like what you say. Although there's a fair amount of fear mongering, I'll tell you. You know, there are certain agents who have been around the, the traps and they've been through peaks and troughs and they also, they're just a bit older and wiser. And, um, who were like, well, okay, let's let's talk about what we do know. Let's talk about the fact we do know this is going to end at some point. And so if you're not under pressure, if you haven't found something else to buy, um, then then why knee-jerk? You know, so there are some agents out there having those conversations with their vendors and there's other agents that want their commission in the bank, you know, and, and haven't <laughs> been – and are still smarting from the recent downturn and, and didn't really do very well in that downturn because they – fail to understand you've got to give good advice to your clients and it's not be panic merchants. And, and I know this on the ground. So it is sort of interesting. Even now we see some vendors knee jerking and panicking and, and prepared to sort of, Oh, quick, 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 catching not, you know, falling knife thing versus others that go, well, I actually not in a position where I have to sell. I'm not in a position where I found something else to buy. Why would I put myself in the situation where I I'm selling now in a panic, and I'm heading into a period of uncertainty and potentially not owning anything. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that the differences. I think that's a really good point, Veronica. And it, and it also touches on something that's so important to remember about a pandemic-induced downturn is that it's a temporary thing. Um, it's, if we look to what's happening in areas like China, South Korea, where they really have managed to contain the spread of the coronavirus, their economic indicators show that activity is starting to lift. And if vendors can expect that buyers will be back in the market, um, you know, once the virus is contained, then there might be more of a positive outlook. There might be more of a, um, a higher expectation maintained around the property value. The key headwind would be unemployment. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's fine for the vendor to, to keep a high expectation if they've had you know, years now where say Sydney property values are, are typical values near a million dollars. It's, on the other side of the pandemic, can people still have the same borrowing capacity or um, income levels that, that will enable them to, to pay high prices? So I think that'll be the key thing. And it's about can government stimulus help to maintain employment as much as possible yeah. um, and help to maintain the regular operation of the economy as much as possible? And that, that's interesting because in, in that report, that, that uh, article that you wrote, which we'll put the link in the show notes, by the way, um, and even though I know some of, the, some of it's a little out of date already because everything's <laughs> changing daily, but, I mean, it, it's, it is interesting because it does actually detail a lot of these fundamentals. But you did um, put a chart there about the hospitality um, sector, the highest amount of hospitality jobs, I think it was, is in the inner west of Sydney. Is that correct? In terms of That's Sydney? correct. Yeah. Yep. Which is sort of interesting. Yeah, and then you think, oh, my God, that means Inner West is going to be the place to buy this, where all the panic sellers are going to be, this, where the bargains are going to be. And then you think, well, it's still a fairly aspirational area, so then you'll have people flooding here that didn't, couldn't previously afford the Inner West. 
So there'll be that movement, that migration of, of buyers and, and behaviour in that regard. I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to a question here is that um, can we sort of predict in any way other than looking at job at um, employment sectors and job losses can we predict in any other way as to what sort of movement of property prices and areas that might be more at risk uh, I, do, I do think that granular unemployment data will be the main one um, but I suppose we also need to consider something like household financial stability uh, what kind of um, data it would be available around um uh, mortgage distress or, or rental yeah. distress. The other thing I'd say about the inner West is that I would say a lot of those people working in hospitality and, and related sectors that are directly affected might actually be renters yeah. and not mm. so much um, property owners as well. Yeah. Um, but I agree. Well, I think kids. that if you, sorry. All the, um, the university student children of the um, owner occupiers. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, potentially. Um, so I, I, I agree in that, you know, even though we are entering a period where transaction volumes are starting to drop off, values will likely follow. Uh, if you're in a situation where you're confident about your job prospects, you've, you've got finances in order and things like that, um, the coming months could actually present a lot of uh, opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it, it really it really just depends. Again, I think what what uh, income prospects look like uh, coming out of the shutdown period. I think that's a really good point because I think the uh, unemployment is the canary in the coal mine here, and how bad that gets, and how long this lasts. If we do successfully do what you know other countries are potentially doing by being really strict and stopping the spread and getting on top of it. We don't know if we've got there yet. US don't know if they've got there yet, the UK, et cetera. So, but if we do do that and it's not as bad and as deep, then, you know, things probably all right. But it's how long does it go for and how bad does unemployment get? There's a few areas though that, you know, I wouldn't mind because one of the things that I loved about reading your article and it's not many, I think, property economists uh, and property people do this enough um, and they don't cut their research back and say that the property market's not one market. And you literally said that, I think that was a couple of times in your article, you said that. And I think that's Mm. really important to do that because, you know, this, what happens in say, you know, houses in the inner ring versus house and land packages in the outer suburbs, because for example, this is, you know, this is my worry, I guess, for say the house and land packages is, is, a lot of them are young families. Um, a lot of them potentially have young children. And so one party is maybe working part-time or casual um, or not at all. Um, the other thing is a lot of them are purchased in the last five years um, with big purchase prices because that's, you know, new house and land packages have only been built in the last five years. So when they've been purchased recently, they've also purchased at high prices with high debt. Um, so a lot of these house and land packages have, you know, 90% mortgages, um, with one person working, uh, and young families. And if you start to see, um, you know, unemployment hit, if there's no one working in a household, even if they can get six month payment holidays, um, and interest rates are 2%, if no one's working, um, unfortunately they've got to potentially sell, um, and so I think there's those type of areas are potentially susceptible to shocks to unemployment and also having to fire sell. Um, whereas say some of your more established properties, like a third of the properties in an area might've been bought in the 1980s or 1970s. Um, a third of the properties might've been bought in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, and maybe a third of the property were bought in the last 10 years, if that makes sense. Um, so a lot of the properties have very low debts or no debt, um, compared to these kind of new house and land packages areas where everyone's got a lot of debt. Yeah. I think when you look at some of the more nuanced data around the composition of debt, um, the RBA produced some analysis in 2017, which looked at the distribution of debt among different income levels, um, and among different buffer periods that they had for their loans. Uh, what their research suggested was that of 
the owner-occupier mortgage holders in Australia, and, and mind this was back in 2017, uh, about a third of mortgage holders had at least a two-year buffer on their loan repayments. Um, it did show that about a quarter had less than one month. Mm. So you do have a group that uh, are pretty well able to withstand the economic shock in terms of what it could do for their ability to repay mortgage. Then you have uh, quite a significant group, which is very vulnerable as well. And as you say, Chris, I think that those might be concentrated in certain areas, in certain markets, and particularly, I guess, lower socioeconomic areas. Um, But what I would say is that there's uh, also uh, uh, against that, they laid this data set, which was looking at, well, actually those with the highest uh, household debt to income ratios were in the highest level of income as well. Mm -hmm. So that research kind of showed us that those who are in very high debt levels tend to be the people who can afford it, um, which I think makes us understand that the household debt issue isn't quite as bad. Having said that, I do anticipate that there will probably be more, uh, you know, mortgage arrears and and mortgage stress um, uh, out of the the current situation. But I guess it's just important to note those kind of differences in the data. Yeah. And I mean, another one, like, for example, you touched on it with the hospitality sector with, um, you know, renters, right? Now, there's legislation potentially going to be passed, and you might know more about this than me, but where, you know, as a landlord, you can't kick out, not that you'd want to, but, you know, you might, if your tenant stops paying rent, what do you do? If they've lost their job because of corona, um, you can't kick them out on the streets. Um, and so, you know, I guess some investors are potentially going to come under um, under problems because if they haven't got the rent, how are they going to afford the mortgage? The, and the bank may not do payment holidays on, you know, investment properties and things like that. So I think the you know, the impact on renters and, investors is probably another area. Would you agree or do you have any data on that? Absolutely. I think that the anecdotally we're hearing about the conversion of say short-term rental accommodation like Airbnb, that's been directly impacted because of travel bans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you've got landlords looking to convert those to long-term rentals, which is adding to the supply of rental property. Uh, You've got uh, renting households in part-time and casual positions who may be more vulnerable to layoffs, who uh, might have to move back in with their parents or, um, I don't know, a a cheaper rental situation in a share house or something. So that's collapsing the rental demand. Um, So between that, you're likely going to see uh, higher vacancy rates. I would say that for this whole, um, you know, idea of not evicting tenants, it does seem like the process, the uh, um, mediation process, say, um, would be extended if uh, you get more and more renters trying to challenge the landlord on, uh, you know, not, not paying rent or something. Uh, similarly to, you know, claims of unemployment benefits, we might see an increase in claims of um uh, you know, no, no grounds eviction or, or something like that. Um, so yeah, that, that sort of, uh, rental space is going to be an interesting one to, to see play out. Um, I think, yeah, but so we'll likely, likely see falling rents. And, and the other thing too, is, you know, I, I'm in a share house where if one of us wasn't able to pay rent, that's kind of going to collapse the whole dynamic because we might not be able to find another tenant right now. Um, I don't even know how it would work inviting people into the home to, to look at rooms and things like that. So it's just had all sorts of incredible, unprecedented impacts on renting, investing, owning. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. It will be interesting. It's funny because my property manager sent out a mail, an email yesterday and about that Airbnb issue that, that there's been more stock all of a sudden flooding the market. I've got the unfortunate situation myself. I'm, normally I keep tenants in leases and, um, and my property manager is really, really good on that. Um, but in this particular case, I had these good tenants in this property, one property uh, for a while and I knew that they were looking to buy. And, you know, fabulous timing. They just gave notice to move out, vacate in the middle of April. Um, yeah, and um, 
they've well they've actually bought but they're moving into state um and as just as this morning I, I heard that because they're worried that they won't be able to get into state because if we have a lockdown that they are bringing forward their moves so they're now going to move next week they might not even be able to do that who knows everything changes daily so um you know, and I had, we had, uh, they did do an open house uh, last weekend when it was still um, legal. Um, and I'd even said to the property manager, I don't want you doing that anymore. I think the tenant will be uncomfortable and just do it by appointment. But we had one application and it was a terrible application. It was, it was three people, two of them on casual work, you know, both of them sort of in, in leisure or hospitality type linked industries. One was on full-time work in the health and that's great. Um, some, there was some money in the bank basically, but only one to six month uh, lease, which I hear is much more common all of a sudden. And, um, you know, and then they wanted to offer me a, a reduced rent, which I would have gone with, but except for the fact that two of them are on casual employment, it's like, well, that's not a good bet for me. Mm. Um, and they can't move in for a month anyway. So, yeah, I'm, I'm personally in a situation with one of my properties and think, oh, well, I have to just have a long-term focus and think I will ride this out. Ultimately, people will go back to renting property and ultimately there will be demand absorbed, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, those Airbnbs will go back to being Airbnbs so that they can, um, you know, when the travel is, ban is lifted. But, however, it does show a fragility within our stock because so much of our vacancy rates sort of a little bit masked by the fact that quite a lot of stock has not really been effectively properly on the rental market. Yeah, absolutely. And it just goes to show it's not just the supply of um, uh, this oversupply of rental stock, but it's, you know, where do you find the quality tenants in a, mm. uh, in, in a time like this as well? I guess one thing I would say is that a lot of what the government and RBA and APRA have sort of been targeting at this time is keeping economic operations as normal as possible. I think it's inevitable now, like that we're probably going to go into a recession, but it's like, well, how much can we keep the structural elements the same? And when you talk about either defaulting on a property and having to find somewhere to live or you know, being evicted as a tenant or whatever, the change in housing situation can be very disruptive and make it a lot harder to get back on your feet while, you know, the economy is resuming to normal activity. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of why we've seen such an emphasis on, you know, making the capital available to banks so they can absorb a temporary pause on mortgage repayments and things like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Just to talk through because um, just exactly what the RBA did on Thursday um, and because, you know, quantitative easing or QE that people are just starting to kind of switch on to, um, you know, it's not the first time this has happened. It's first time in Australia, I believe. You can prove me wrong. But, I mean, overseas it's happened a lot and for maybe nearly 10 years now. But you explain about what's actually happened to the RBA. Can they drop rates lower? And, um, you know, what's their plan? What are they thinking? Sure. So the RBA have dropped the cash rate to what they call the effective lower bound, which is 0.25%. And what the effective lower bound means is that they do not believe any further reductions in the cash rate would create any further stimulating in the economy. Um, they don't think that dropping the rates any further uh, would lead to more borrowing at that point. Um, the RBA has to, um, you know, deposit for uh, banking institutions that leave money in the um, uh, overnight uh, transaction accounts. Um, so it is, I guess, um, without getting too into the complexities, <laughs> uh, 0.25% is effectively zero for the RBA and they're not going to go lower and Governor Lowe's pretty strongly signaled that that is the case. Now, because they can't go any lower, they need to find other ways to get money um, into the economy, um, into places of, you know, capital investment or, or whatever. Um, so what they do is they, they target the government bond yields. Government bonds are considered a kind of um, safe asset. So people do tend to put 
uh, money into government bonds when uh, the, the economic climate is very uncertain. And recently, the economic bond yield on three-year government bonds has been at about um, 0.45%. So to lower that, they um, auction off uh, government bonds, which reduces the yield, which hopefully sees investors um, putting money into other areas. Um, I don't know exactly where that money would go right now, Uh, whether, you know, if you're a small business, maybe you take this time to take out a loan to retain staff or... um, invest in online training packages for your staff or something like that. Uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm a small business owner <laughs> so with staff and I talk to a lot of other small business owners because I'm a member of a number of groups and that is a big focus is to use um, that available cash and stimulus to actually keep staff and, and maintain uh, the business and, and particularly when you've got a good team that you want to retain, it takes a long time to get to that point because we all do know this is, is when we say short term, unfortunately short term without an end date, but mm. we all do know that when, when we return to some sense of normality, we want to basically hit the ground running and continue to, to trade. Um, and so that is very much a focus. I know of a lot of people I'm talking to is really about using that money to, to, um, as a buffer to, to stop more unemployment. Yeah. I think it's, um, sorry for giving you to explaining what quantitative easing was because um, <laughs> it's like trying to explain what water tastes like or something. It's, uh, yeah, no, that's okay. And I guess um, one important <laughs> distinction I think as well is that governor Lowe has said that this isn't technically like quantitative easing because yeah. It's not about targeting a, a quantity. It's about targeting uh, a certain yield on government bonds. Yeah. So I hopefully I <laughs> got the basic concept across. But um, it's interesting. So bank finance is what they're trying to do is push down the short term money cost for banks, uh, and that allows them to pass it on to customers. Now I think. You know, I'm not, not sure about this, but I reckon behind the scenes there was a conversation between the RBA and the big heads of the banks and um, they kind of came to an agreement that they will pass it on through offering ridiculously low fixed rates to customers and we've already seen that as soon as the RBA did what they did, all the banks pretty much um, conveniently really fast, in particular CBA, came out with pricing that... Um, you know, was really, really sharp. So obviously something had allowed them to come up to that decision really fast. So I think you're right though, because in other countries, what they've done is they've just increased the money supply. Am I right? Like in terms of they've just basically created open lines of Mm. credit for the banks to keep borrowing um, as much as they want, basically. So um, if they needed to borrow money to lend to people and businesses and things like that, then the government would lend them that money. But in this situation, the government's actually trying to do what you're talking about is just lower the cost of that funding, not the actual total amount of it. Yeah. And I guess overseas we've seen negative interest rates as well, which again, the RBA have signaled they're, they're really not keen to do. They don't consider it something that's been successful. Um, so it looks like uh, the cash rate will probably be sitting at about 25 um, or 0.25% for a long time until they get to that kind of 2 to 3% inflation band, um, which I think the RBA governor was saying was, uh, you know, could take up to three years. So also signaling a long period of very low interest rates. As an economist sort of going forward, um, what do you see as like parts of the country um, and sort of, do you see that some parts of the country are going to get hit much harder than others? Like, you know, I guess Tasmania as an example has done really well over the last say five years because international tourism, um, in particular, say China, um, has flooded there for holidays and things like that, right? So, um, you know, and maybe places where university students aren't coming. Have you seen like parts of the economy and areas and towns and cities that will get hit much harder if this continues? Yeah, I think that there will definitely be markets that get hit more than others. And we've seen that in the past, right? Uh, The collapse of the mining sector 
around 2014 when the East Coast property market was doing quite well. Uh, we saw the really quite sharp collapse in Perth and Darwin properties and, and those markets are still, you know, Darwin's still about 30% below its record high. Um, you've had localized uh, impacts like the Brisbane unit market where, where unit values are still about 11% below their peak. So certainly there will be markets that are more acutely affected. Um, Tasmania is an interesting one because I think the momentum of growth was already slowing before we saw a lot of the social distancing measures put in place that have put further downward pressure on demand. Um, but in terms of actually saying, you know, this will fall by X, Y, Z, um, we haven't really got any uh, formal forecasting around that. Um, uh, and I guess as well, an important distinction to make is I don't, um, I don't really call myself an economist either. Um, I guess it's, uh, I, I always see the uh, economist level at uh, like PhD uh, kind of title. So um, yeah, I just call myself like a market analyst. I'm looking at what a lot of, you know, those leading economists like Bill Evans, for example, uh, have to say on where unemployment is going. Um, and yeah, we'll just be tracking the data uh, I'll be putting out regular updates and, and we'll see which of those markets, I guess, is more acutely affected over time. So what we want to do, obviously, is put a link in the show notes so that people can actually subscribe to your regular updates because we like them. So can we get you to send that through so we can pop that in the show notes? Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure that you guys are on the uh, mailing list. But otherwise, the link would just be like corelogic.com.au slash news. Yep. So one Got other it. question I'd like to just fire in there as well, because I think um, I do think, you know, there's a lot of people listening right now that are A, thinking about buying that are extremely fearful uh, about entering because they don't want to buy into a market that could fall on them. And this is what happened in 2018. Like, you know, people should have been buying in 2018 when markets were falling on reflection. However, the concern about how bad the market could fall stopped them taking action. So there's going to be a lot of people who are just A, buyers are freaked out, but also a lot of sellers who potentially could be selling because they're also freaked out, which is what we alluded to before. One of the biggest things that supports prices is what you mentioned, something called being consumption good. Can you explain... Mm. What do you actually mean by that um, and how that really supports prices um, compared to different assets, for example, like shares? Yeah, so it, I guess by saying it's a consumption good, it basically means that people use it, right? People live in property, which means that even if the value of your property is falling, you're not necessarily inclined to sell it in the same way as you would be with a share. Uh, because you still need somewhere to live and you can't live in a share. Um, so that's part of what contributes to housing being uh, less of a, a liquid asset and, and more something that people do have relatively long hold periods on. So I think the other thing to note about the buyers being kind of freaked out, I can understand it. I, I honestly do think that the social distancing measures that are in place now are probably going to prevent a lot of buyers at the moment anyway. Yeah. You're not necessarily going to be going out and meeting with buyers agents or, or meeting with brokers. Yeah. Um, that That's my take anyway. I don't, I don't know. People might be using uh, virtual platforms to, to get around that and, that and that's great if they can. But yeah. the, the RBA signaled that rates are going to be low for a very long time. And I think that's so important to remember is that when we come out of this, there's still going to be demand for property. There's going to be very um, cheap access to credit. Um, and again, so long as your job prospects you, you think are sort of safe, I think there could be um, some good opportunities to look at finding your home as we kind of come out of the current crisis. 100% I think that's what's going to happen. I think everyone should be, I guess, number one priority is maintaining or, you know, growing their personal capital and their employment and making sure they're secure there because once you do come out of it, you know, we are seeing rates potentially under 2%, which, you know, is pretty crazy. And property, unfortunately, when rates go lower, property prices go up um, because 
people pay mortgages and then they borrow and that's what is, you know, that access to credit and the cost of credit is one of the biggest drivers of property values. So if we've got even lower interest rates, unfortunately that will lead to higher prices for people. So I think, um, I think you're very right on the money there. That's great. I mean, Eliza, one of the reasons I want to get you on is because we did want to talk about, you know, the fundamentals of the property market and to, and to put some, I guess, some levity into the conversation around this is very much a long term in the past, you know, and, and I encourage people to go and read the article that, that sort of we've, we've launched this episode off um, because it does, it's a bit of a history lesson, I guess, in what's happened in Australian property market since we've been recording uh, uh, responses to crises. Um, but also I think it, it's quite timely too in terms of the changeability and the access to data that you've got. And I'd love the, um, you mentioned earlier on in the episode about um, agent survey of 400-odd um, agents. Do you, can you send us a link to that as well to include in the show notes? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not been published yet, but as soon as it is, we'll uh, make sure that uh, we get you guys a link. Lovely. Because, I mean, once again, I mean, everything's moving so fast. That's, that's going to change dramatically. <laughs> yeah. I guess what we do have to keep reminding ourselves is that this is changeable, but it is short term. And in the whole scheme of things, even if it is six months, that's still a short term. Um, and certainly when it comes to property. Um, so, you know, I think understanding that, that uh, those principles is really important. And I think the only other thing to add really is in terms of the timing of this is it's March and, you know, we're already going into a period where there already generally is lower listings. So, um, you know, like they brought forward the school holidays, they kind of brought forward the winter of property market anyway, I think. And so, um, you know, where people generally don't want to transact and sell their homes in winter, they want to sell it in nice sunny days. So um, I think it's just going to create a real supply where everyone just doesn't sell, doesn't buy, and then you get this kind of big freeze. It's what people mentioned the other week. Yes. And actually, Eliza, in your, in your article, you did talk about the, the regular seasonal um, changes that we experience every single year. And, um, in fact, we talked about that in our last special episode on the coronavirus. I mean, in many ways, behaviourally, that is our, our, I guess, probably a, a greatest indicator of what might happen at the end of all this. It could be, yeah. There's the it, – it's. I guess I compared it to the idea of what happens when sales drop off, but you know that the market will come back. So uh, we see that every year for the past 20 years, the average drop off in sales activity from November to December is uh, about 16%. But the average change in values over those months has actually been a, a very small increase. Mm. So the the idea is that because it's a holiday period, the, the vendor expectation is, okay, I know no one is buying now, but when the holiday period is over, they will be back and they will be you know willing to pay a, a relatively uh, similar price. Um, I guess, again, just to emphasize, because things have unfolded and, and we are seeing a bit more of a dramatic yeah. drop-off in, in some of the indicators, I do still think the moderating factor will be employment and, and the ability of the sell, uh, the buyers to come back when, uh, you know, when the economy resumes some sense of normality. Um, yeah. but, but I think that is a useful way to just kind of... It, it, understand the temporal nature of the current downturn. Yeah. And actually just anecdotally, I would say that not all, because often what I'm always interested in when I talk to people who are currently looking to sell or currently looking to buy is that their experience is only of whatever the market conditions are at the time that they are doing whatever they're doing. And they don't necessarily pull themselves back and have a look at the the whole nature of, you know, the market in its ups and downs. Um, whereas obviously me as a professional, my team as a professional, you know, we are, we're in it day in, day out. All of us, all three of us are in it day in, day out. We, we get that these things have, um, you know, they, they move, they change. Um, and it's interesting. So dealing with, with buyers and sellers over Christmas periods um, in the last 20 years that I've been in real estate, often vendors don't realise prices are going to come back. They actually, then they themselves are only, there's that recency bias. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're actually, wow. forecasting in, yeah, that actually is what happens with a lot of people. Um, so there's a behavioral bias that happens on a micro level. Um, 
as well there. So, you know, it, as I said, that, that's fascinating. And, and I think that's something that I guess I didn't really consider is that it's actually maybe the more informed act- actors in the market who uh, have that more long-term view and, and that sense that, um, you know, prices and activity does come back. Yes. And in fact, that's exactly the point. Most people don't because it's highly emotional property. Even investors think that they're, you know, making decisions with their, their, um, you know, the dollars and cents and the numbers, but, and this is the whole premise of this entire podcast <laughs> is that mm-hmm. the highly emotional nature of our decision-making around property. Um, and that does tap into that whole short-term versus long-term and that reactiveness. So, but I think it goes back to what you're saying about in the share market, you see that reaction in real time, you know, yes. and because of the liquidity of it and the fact that the entire market is always available for sale. Whereas in property, it's not. And so therefore it, where people are forced to not act on their, have knee jerk reactions to what fundamentally internally they might be feeling. So I find that personally very fascinating. Yeah. And I guess additionally to that's the cost of transact. Like if you, you know, if you, even if you've got a good property and you want to sell it now, um, cause you think you could, you know, you, you can't just go and buy it back at a lower price. That's the same property. Once you've sold it, you've got to go through that, pay all the cost to sell then you've got to go pay the cost to buy it. Then you've got to go and find it and go through all the heartache to go and find a good property. Whereas if, for example, you want to buy Qantas shares, for example, um, you might love Qantas as a business, but you might think that in six months' time I could buy those shares cheaper. So yeah. you sell Qantas shares and then you, you know you can always go and buy Qantas shares and the cost to transact is not that expensive with shares. So um, mm. you haven't got like – and so you just don't get this trading of property. You get people just sitting on profits. Um, and in, in downturns, I think you'll just find that – um, you know, the properties that will probably get listed over the next six months are the properties that investors can't get tenants on. Um, so they lose their tenant and then they can't rent them out. Um, so investors will have to get rid of them. And then, you know, people will probably want to, uh, you know, the things that they can't avoid selling like death or divorce and things like that. Um, whereas other than that, I think a lot of people will just batten down the hatches, I guess. Um, but I mean, thank you so much, Eliza. I think it would be really interesting to do this maybe again in say, six months time or three months time because I think we'll have yes. a lot of clarity on, on where things are going. Absolutely. Maybe in a week. <laughs> Thank you very much, Eliza. <laughs> no worries at all. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to catch up with you guys. Great, You're always great to get to you too. See ya. Bye. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Veronica, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Do you know, I do have a property dumbo and look, it's got nothing to do with coronavirus. So just for a moment, let's change the subject slightly. This is something I heard recently and it was a bit of a classic. Um, I had somebody who came to me for some advice. Uh, I do do one-on-one advice uh, advice for um, people every now and then. So they, they paid for some of my time, sat down with me. They rolled out this story that they were going to, you know, the story of their sale of their property, which they had already regretted, and uh, the other property that they were looking at buying and where they got to with that basically they got stuck because they couldn't quite work out why the agent wasn't really engaging with them on their offer. So I sat there and heard the story and I could hear a lot of very flawed thinking that had gone into their rationalisation of why they were going to do what they were going to do and fundamentally it was a really, really, really terrible property. They'd sold sort of without thinking too heavily about what the next step was for them uh, then they suddenly realised, oh, my God, I've got to buy another property. They looked at what their three essential, um, you know, must-haves were and they were prepared to compromise on at least one of them with this particular property, but they were so panicked because they didn't want to be homeless. So I sat down with them and I said, okay, we've got a fork in the road here. Um, we can, I can either sit here and, and listen to this story and, and basically um, commend you on your, your decisions and choices and pat you on the back and say what, how smart you are and um, encourage you to continue down the path you're on. Or I can tell you what I really think, which is something quite different, but it's totally up to you because you're paying me for my time and I don't want to be sitting here telling you what you don't want to hear. Now, I know that the wife did not want to hear my advice, but she wasn't quite game enough to say it. Um, and so I gave them my advice, which was, was not to go for that property. 
Anyway, cut to the chase. They did get me to advise them on another property. Um, they didn't end up buying it. It did sell for a ridiculous price, and I think they were quite relieved. But when it came to further advice from me, they really didn't want good advice. Um, and when I say good advice, she wanted to be able to be free, have free reign to go and make offers and whatever property she wanted all by herself. And I was saying, you really need to take your time and don't do that. Um, you really need to wait and be certain before you make offers. Um, and she didn't like me basically running her in. And so that's okay. So she decided not to be, um, to keep working with me as a client. Well, I found out on the grapevine through some agents that she used another buyer's agent. Apparently that buyer's agent found the whole experience not very enjoyable. And uh, the sales agents have been telling us about the amount of crazy offers this woman had been running around throwing at agents through this process. So she had good advice. She didn't really want to take it. She wanted to be too involved. Um, and, you know, I encourage clients to be involved, but when you're throwing offers at, at agents without really fully considering whether A, whether it's the right property for you, B, what is it really worth, you're putting agents off, you're annoying them, they're less likely to take you seriously. And then when you've actually engaged a buyer's agent whose advice you're not taking, well, you're putting that person off as well. So ultimately they did buy a property and the word on the street is that they paid too much and it wasn't a really great property. And that was after, actually after engaging two buyer's agents throughout the process, but no, not listening to either of them. Yeah, I think it's um, it's common that, uh, you know, it's the biggest financial decision people are going to make. It's got a huge lifestyle element into it. Um, and that's why you should be working with your professionals who do it every day um, and don't stop shooting yourself in the foot and don't get agents off on the wrong side. I think, um, you know, it's one of the experiences that I had when I was buying is that, um, yeah, I was very involved, but you know, and, but, you know, and I was potentially doing things that were not helping myself, um, you know, because I was a bit too involved as well. So, you know, it, it is about being very careful and a strategy around how you work with a, a buyer's agent to get the best outcome. Um, because I'm sure there's lots of things that your buyers do, Veronica, that, um, you know, aren't helping, uh, even though they think they're helping. So, um, yeah, it's a learning process and, uh, <laughs> Well, that's what we see to stop them doing the stuff that's not helping themselves, you know. And um, But, yeah, I just thought that was funny because I let her go. I was quite happy to let her go because she was really not helping herself and just wasn't fun to work with really. But um, to hear that on the grapevine via the agent, via the sales agents was just very interesting, very sad really for her and her family, but um, that's the way it is. We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training is... Well, Eliza alluded to this and it really was about, well, what we want to talk about is being prepared to recognise opportunities. And Eliza, I think, was a little surprised to hear that a lot of property buyers and owners are not necessarily long-term focused. Um, but you need to be long-term focused so that you can be better prepared to recognise good opportunities that may come up and also recognise when things are not good opportunities. So it's really about being prepared. And we talked about this in our last coronavirus special episode about getting prepared financially, uh, you know, doing your financial housekeeping and actually getting all your tax returns in and actually getting your pre-approvals uh, in place and refinancing, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to talk about being prepared from the buyer's point of view. And that is being very, very well researched yourself and understanding what you need and what ultimately you need to buy so that you can remain laser focused on exactly what your requirements are so you don't get waylaid by what might be a bargain but actually isn't really the right property for you. That's really important. But then also really understanding values and understanding where properties sit with relation to value so that you're not thinking I've got to get, I've got to screw a deal and I've got to really, really, um, it has to be this crazy bargain in order for it to be a good opportunity. And and I think that's really important because when things go back to normal, as we talked about all the time, we talk about this, that A-grade property always in, in very good locations always has a buyer, always has a buyer. And even if we're staring down the period of time where we're locked down and we, nobody can buy anything, when we get back, there will be the aspirational buyers who want to move into areas that they couldn't previously afford. They want to buy properties they couldn't previously afford. So that's where this A-grade um, idea is so important to really recognise and understand what makes up A-grade property and that the, the, the characteristics, there's nuances in different areas. 
uh, as well. So really getting to understand local local um, buyer demand, local uh, the characteristics that appeal to local buyers and understanding all of that sort of thing, understanding prices. So use this time to research that and get yourself so ready so that when you see an opportunity, you A, know it's right for you and you B, know really what really is good value for it. Please join us for our next episode when we talk about tax. Now, don't turn off. I can assure you this is actually a very, very interesting conversation. We talk about so many things regarding tax and property, pitfalls, traps, you know, for the unwary, all that sort of stuff. But we also have a few elephants that are revealed and we learnt heaps. So you are going to, so I really encourage you to tune in when we interview accountants Alison Lacey. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.